Welcome to Catholic Light. Join me, Becca Doherty, each week as we shed a little light while keeping the conversation light. Hi, and welcome back to another episode of Catholic Light. Thanks for joining me. Thanks for your patience and understanding in our our skipped week, our missed week last week of Catholic Light episodes. Um, My brother, Father Gregory, uh, has the opportunity to visit a few times a year, so he was up visiting um, our family, so we had our uh, Pine family gatherings uh, each day, and I got to Sunday night and thought, you know what, we're going to take a little break this week and resume the following week, so... Uh, hopefully you had a nice week off or having a nice summer. And uh, here we go. Let's resume our discussion of the first commandment. We'll, we'll talk a little bit more about the first commandment, which we talked about in the last episode. And then we'll talk about the second commandment today, not having other gods before God, Yahweh, God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Uh, I'm not sure where the kids heard it, but our kids have occasionally heard people say, you know, Jesus Christ as like an expletive. And they must have sensed Dan and me kind of like wince at it and say like, you know, is that a bad word? And so the way that we explained it to them, because they're, you know, they're little at this point, is to say this. I say, guys, when we say the name of Jesus, just imagine Jesus in heaven rushing to our side and saying like, yes, yes, Sophia, you called. Yes, Declan. You, you needed me. You called my name. Um, and then if we're not really praying or not really calling on his name uh, to chat with him, then he's like, oh, okay. And then he kind of goes on his merry way. Now, this is a very overly simplified kid way of explaining it. Um, but we explain it in this way to the kids to say, like, we don't – it's an improper use of Jesus's name to say it, like, when we stub our toe or, you know, something – unsatisfactory comes our way and so we don't you know we don't just cavalierly use Jesus's name because there he is ready and waiting he's always ready and waiting to to chat with us um but when we shout out his name you know he's he's especially if we can imagine especially at our side like yes and then it's like oh no I was actually cursing (laughs) actually I'm frustrated actually I'm angry it's like okay you could have chosen a different word there so I overhear uh, Declan had one of his little buddies playing uh, over at our house and they're, you know, they're just swinging side by side on our, our playground in the backyard chatting. And I don't think Wyatt said Jesus Christ, but he must have said, oh, you know what he said? He must have said geez. And Declan with this serious little five-year-old face as they're, they continue to swing like <laughs> like these old men just chatting shoulder to shoulder. He says, you know, um, Wyatt. Um, we don't say G's because G's is short for Jesus Christ. And if you say Jesus Christ, then Jesus comes from heaven right by your side and says, yes, Wyatt, what did you want to talk about? <laughs> so I'm standing at the kitchen sink, hearing this through the window, like, oh, little De- little Declan. So we talk um, after we, we finish our discussion of the first commandment about how the under the second commandment we we don't take the name of the Lord in vain. The name of the Lord is holy, as paragraph 2142 reminds us. So the name of the Lord is holy. It's to be kept holy. And when we do that, when we recognize that that God's name is holy because his name is an indication or a representation of who he is, then that helps us in our humanity elevate our hearts and minds to the, the all-holy God. Um, to round out our discussion of the first commandment, uh, paragraphs 
21, 28-ish, talk about atheism and agnosticism. And so this is, again, under a discussion of the first commandment, which if you refer back in your physical catechism to pages 496 and 497, the first commandment is, I am the Lord your God. Uh, excuse me, the traditional catechal formula, I am the Lord your God, you shall not have strange gods before me. So recalling, remembering, keeping before our, our hearts and minds that that God is God. Um, so I would start each uh, school year with my high school students with kind of some basic discussions to get everybody on the same page, make sure we were using the same language, the same definitions. Because a number of my students had, um, they had been in Catholic education for much of their lives, maybe all of their schooling, and had picked up um, a lot of good stuff, a lot of truth, but sometimes, depending on the teacher or the curriculum or the school, had picked up um, some misunderstandings or notions that were incorrect. And so one of the things I would do the maybe the first day, second day of school, is go over atheism and agnosticism. And we can think about these terms in their etymology. That, that prefix A just means no or not. So if you are apathetic, apathetic, you have no pathos or no feeling. If you are an atheist, you believe there is no God. So theism implies, uh, refers to a belief in God. So if you're an atheist, you believe there's no God. Versus if you're an agnostic, um, you have no gnosis or no knowledge of whether or not God exists. So recall from some of our, our earlier discussions about the heresy of Gnosticism. So those who were Gnostic in the early church, and Gnosticism is one of those heresies that continues to pervade uh, the church and the world throughout church history. Um, Gnostics believed that they had a secret knowledge. Um, so think of Dan Brown's popular fictional work, The Da Vinci Code. Uh, Gnostics believe that, you know, only an elite few really know what happened between Jesus and Mary Magdalene. So these poor schleps throughout time and history have believed that that Jesus was perpetually a virgin, that he never married, um, that he lived the celibate priest as, as priests do today. Excuse me, lived a life of celibacy as priests do today. Um, but only, you know, a, a a secret few have the true knowledge or gnosis that Jesus was secretly married to Mary Magdalene. And then they populated, I think Dan Brown says, you know, the, like this French hierarchy or monarchy. Um, and I think in his, his book, the Da Vinci code, one of the characters is actually a descendant of Jesus and Mary Magdalene. So an agnostic or a meaning no. And then that root word, uh, gnosis means knowledge, and agnostic has no knowledge about whether or not God exists. Paragraph 2128. So we make the distinction atheists believe there is no such thing as God, God does not exist, and agnostics uh, are on the fence. Maybe he exists, or maybe she exists, maybe he or she doesn't. I don't know. But what paragraph 2128 uh, says, I think, brings, brings to light how this belief. Um, 
really plays out in our our day-to-day life. Agnosticism can sometimes include a certain search for God, but it can equally express indifferentism, a flight from the ultimate question of existence, and a sluggish moral conscience. Agnosticism is all too often equivalent to practical atheism. So um, agnosticism is kind of a nice option for people who don't want to be decisive about God, um, who maybe have not been instructed in any sort of religion or faith or teaching about God. And so he or she might think like, eh, like either I'll get around to it or eh, I've done some research, like I've learned enough to know that like eh, there's not enough info out there to really make a decision. But what it comes down to is while, while we're in that state, while an agnostic is in that state of like, maybe God exists, maybe he doesn't, in reality, in the day-to-day, it comes down to a practical atheism. So I'm, if I don't know whether or not God exists, I'm likely not praying, I'm likely not going to church, and likely not uh, allowing some sort of um, moral system to inform my, my day-to-day choices and actions. So it can equally express indifferentism, like, eh, this doesn't really matter or have an effect on my life or the lives of others. A flight from the ultimate question of existence, like, dang, the ultimate question of existence. Who am I? From where did I come? And where am I going? Okay, either there's a God and I came from him and I'm headed back to him, or there's not. And if there's not, as we talked about uh, pretty early on in our, our uh, episodes, um, we talked about Pascal's wager. If there's no God, then like it doesn't really matter. There's no point. Um, there's not much of a point to living a moral life because in the end, I'm dead in the ground and who cares? <laughs> Um, agnosticism is all too often equivalent to practical atheism. Oh, a sluggish moral conscience. So agnosticism um, is very helpful if I don't want to, you know, like ask those hard questions of myself, of my life, of my relationships, and just kind of like, meh, go about in an easy, convenient, um, maybe self-serving way. So atheism and agnosticism, and I think I referenced this before, a a lot of my students thought, because we're so immersed in this relativist culture, they thought um, that an atheist, if if a person did not believe in God and then died, they would not encounter God and would just be dead in the ground. And if a Catholic lived his or her life believing in God, he or she would encounter God after death. A Buddhist would encounter nirvana. I don't actually know the the gods of Hinduism. Uh, Practicing, someone who practices Hinduism would encounter the the gods of Hinduism. Um, But we believe in an objective reality, so either God exists or he doesn't. And that's worth spending a little time in our lives trying to figure that out, trying to study, think about it ask good questions, and find the answers. So we, we believe in a God of revelation and a God who has imprinted the natural law on our hearts. And so it's not this like close my eyes and kind of stumble through life with my hand outstretched in front of me like maybe there's a God, maybe there's not. No, the, the human experience resonates with the truth and the truths given to us by this God who reveals himself and calls us back to himself, not for himself, but for us, for love of us, and uh, in hopes that we we live our humanity well and experience the fulfillment of our humanity, which is happiness in this life and the next. So Lord, we pray for the grace to not flee from the ultimate question of existence, but to come before you each day and 
look with, with searching minds and hearts for the answers which you want to provide, provide for us. If we skip back a couple of paragraphs to paragraph 2125, uh, the catechism talks about how those who profess, here it's atheism specifically, but atheism and agnosticism, um, sometimes it's at the hands of believers, at, Catholic, at the hands of Catholics and Christians who don't communicate the faith well. So I think um, it might be easy for us to think sometimes like, oh, I'm not an atheist. I'm not an agnostic. I've been decisive. I can look at the ultimate questions of my existence. But then the the question the catechism turns back to us is, are we communicating the truth effectively and inviting others to turn to the ultimate questions of their existence? Are we inviting with our words and with the way we live our lives? Are we inviting others to something more? Or are we communicating the truth ineffectively and so um, others are not drawn to that or think like, hmm, I don't want that truth, quote unquote, truth in my life because the way it plays out doesn't seem too fun. So paragraph 2125 says, since it rejects or denies the existence of God, atheism is a sin against the virtue of religion. The imputability of this offense or like the, um, the imputability, the, like who's at fault for this offense can be significantly diminished in virtue of the intentions and the circumstances. So let's say a person grows up in an atheistic home um, or maybe in a Catholic home and there is abuse, neglect, and a child might think like, yeah, right, I'm not carrying that into you know my future family or my, my future life. Um, so the imputability of this offense can be significantly diminished in virtue of the intentions and the circumstances. Believers can have more than a little to do with the rise of atheism to the extent that they are careless about their instruction in the faith or pres- present its teaching falsely, or even fail in their religious, moral, or social life, they must be said to conceal rather than to reveal the true nature of God and of religion. Believers can have more than a little to do with the rise of atheism. That's another like, dang, especially when I read this as a theology teacher, and I felt this over the years. Um, I, I felt the weight of my responsibility in communicating the truth to my students because I would for every adorable you know gaggle of students who would stay after class um, or stay at the end come back at the end of the day and say like oh my gosh I loved when we talked about da 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 or I love how we did this debate on da 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 um I'm sure I'm confident that there were a number of students who were going home like yeah right that didn't make any sense and you know I don't know what that has to do with me and so I've prayed and please pray for me that I communicate that effectively and when I'm ineffective when I lead to I Rebecca Doherty lead to the rise of atheism um, or I turn my students off to the faith I pray Jesus I pray that you will send better teachers better instructors better witnesses to my students and bring them back to you so that they can can come to know you and love you and uh, live the life that you have for, for each and every one of them. So Jesus, give us the grace to communicate this faith, this truth, um, these beliefs well, and draw others to you, others to the life that you have for each and every one of us. All right, so let's move on to the second commandment. And if we go back to page 496 in the catechism, the traditional catechetical formula is, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. So as little Declan Doherty so eloquently uh, explained to his friend Wyatt, uh, we are called to keep holy the Lord's name, not to use it, certainly not to use it as like a curse word, um, but not to use it just casually or 
with as though it has no significance because it uh, is the icon. The name of God is the icon for this reality of the infinite, all-loving God. Paragraph 2145 says, The faithful should bear witness to the Lord's name by confessing the faith without giving way to fear. Preaching and catechizing should be permeated with adoration and respect for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. So when we preach and teach uh, about God and teach the, the beauty and value of the Lord's name, it should be permeated, filled with, marked by our actual love for the actual God about whom we, we teach and preach. I remember I had a, a colleague at one point who she had all the right words and all the right sayings. Like she she would, you know, kind of like rattle off these these truisms of our faith and putting our faith, you know, into practice. But every time she said it, I, I thought like, do you believe this? Like, do, do you put this into practice? Because you don't seem joyful about it. And so we should be seeking first a relationship with Jesus Christ and then teaching out of our, our love for Jesus. Paragraph 2143 says, among all the words of revelation, there is one which is unique, the revealed name of God. God confides his name to those who believe in him. He reveals himself to them in his personal mystery. So we believe in a God of revelation, a God who reveals himself. Paragraph 2143 goes on to say, the gift of a name belongs to the order of trust and intimacy. The Lord's name is holy. For this reason, man must not abuse it. He must keep it in mind in silent, loving adoration. He will not introduce it into his own speech except to bless, praise, and glorify it. So God reveals himself. He did not have to reveal himself, but he reveals himself to us in the order of trust and intimacy so that we can come to know him, we can come to know ourselves in him um, in an intimate, trusting, loving way. How beautiful. There's also power in the name of the Lord. So paragraph 2156 says, The sacrament of baptism is conferred in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. In baptism, the Lord's name sanctifies man and the Christian receives his name in the church. So it's at the name, in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit that we are baptized, we are transformed, we are sanctified or made holy. We then, at our baptism, receive our Christian name or our name in the church. Paragraph 2158 goes on to say, God calls each one by name. Everyone's name is sacred. The name is the icon of the person. It demands respect as a sign of the dignity of the one who bears it. So imagine if someone, again, stubbed his toe or was exasperated and said, like, Rebecca Doherty. Um, that's a, a disrespect of my name because my name calls up or conjures up who I am. It's an icon or um, a representation of the greater reality of the person of Rebecca Doherty. And so it's the same with the Lord. We, we say his name with love and tenderness, admiration, adoration, um, because that name is an icon of the all-holy God. I had this interchange at Steubenville where I was with a friend, and um, she was saying something like exasperatedly, and she said, Rebecca Mary. I said, that's not my middle name. She goes, yeah, I don't know. You just look like a Rebecca Mary to me. <laughs> okay. So we, we say others' names in the name of the Lord, not in exasperation, but with adoration, love, and admiration. And speaking of the potency or the importance of words, I would like to publicly apologize to Sophia and Declan. On the last episode, uh, as I was talking about the Jesus Revolution movies for Family Movie Night, I said um, something about Sophia and Declan pick dumb cartoons. Well, God bless my husband, Dan. He listens to 
Catholic light each week. And oftentimes he'll listen while he's emptying the dishwasher or, you know, he'll put it out loud on his phone. And so the kids heard me say that and they came to me a little later, mom, you said our cartoons were dumb. So Sophia and Declan, I'm sorry for calling your cartoons dumb. And as I said to them before, I'm sorry for um, saying it in a public space rather than chatting through it with you uh, in person, one-on-one. So sorry, Sophia and Declan. And thank you for your forgiveness. There was another time unrelated to Catholic Light uh, where Dan was scrolling Facebook, something on social media, and a video just populated and the sound was on. And the gentleman in the video said something about like, da-da-da-da-da, effing stupid, but actually said the curse word. And Sophia and Declan run into the other room and go, Mom, he said stupid. I was like, yes, that is the bad word that was in that segment you just heard. And he should, that man should sit on the step. <laughs> so we're in a stage of life where, where stupid and dumb are the bad words. So praise God for that. All right. We'll take a brief break now and return on the second half of the episode to read paragraphs 2110 through 2167. Thanks for sticking around. You are listening to Catholic Light. Thank you for joining me each week as we read through the Catechism of the Catholic Church and discuss some of its beautiful teachings. Hi, and welcome back. We'll now read Catechism of the Catholic Church, paragraphs 2110 through 2167. You shall have no other gods before me. The first commandment forbids honoring gods other than the one who has revealed himself to his people. It proscribes superstition and irreligion. Superstition, in some sense, represents a perverse excess of religion. Irreligion is the vice contrary by defect to the virtue of religion. Superstition. Superstition is the deviation of religious feeling and of the practices this feeling imposes. It can even affect the worship we offer the true God. For example, when one attributes an importance in some way magical to certain practices otherwise lawful or necessary. To attribute the efficacy of prayers or of sacramental signs to their mere external performance, apart from the interior dispositions that they demand, is to fall into superstition. Idolatry. The first commandment condemns polytheism. It requires man neither to believe in nor to venerate other divinities than the one true God. Scripture constantly recalls this rejection of idols, of silver and gold, the work of men's hands. They have mouths but do not speak, eyes but do not see. These empty idols make their worshipers empty. Those who make them are like them, so are all who trust in them. God, however, is the living God who gives life and intervenes in history. Idolatry not only refers to false pagan worship, it remains a constant temptation to faith. Idolatry consists in divinizing what is not God. Man commits idolatry whenever he honors and reveres a creature in place of God, whether this be gods or demons, for example, Satanism, power, pleasure, race, ancestors, the state, money, etc. Jesus says you cannot serve God and mammon. Many martyrs died for not adoring the beast, refusing even to simulate such worship. Idolatry rejects the unique lordship of God. It is therefore incompatible with communion with God. Human life finds its unity in the adoration of the one God. The commandment to worship the Lord alone integrates man and saves him from an endless disintegration. Idolatry is a perversion of man's innate religious sense. An idolater is someone who transfers his indestructible notion of God to anything other than God. Divination and Magic God can reveal the future to his prophets or to other saints. 
Still, a sound Christian attitude consists in putting oneself confidently into the hands of providence for whatever concerns the future and in giving up all unhealthy curiosity about it. Improvidence, however, can const- excuse me, improvidence, however, can constitute a lack of responsibility. All forms of divination are to be rejected. Recourse to Satan or demons, conjuring up the dead, or other practices falsely supposed to unveil the future. Consulting horoscopes, astrology, palm reading, interpretation of omens and lots, the phenomena of clairvoyance, and recourse to mediums all conceal a desire for power over time, history, and in the last analysis, other human beings, as well as a wish to conciliate hidden powers. They contradict the honor, respect, and loving fear that we owe to God alone. All practices of magic or sorcery by which one attempts to tame occult powers so as to place them at one's service and have a supernatural power over others, even if this were for the sake of restoring their health, are gravely contrary to the virtue of religion. These practices are even more to be condemned when accompanied by the intention of harming someone and when they have recourse to the intervention of demons. Wearing charms is also reprehensible. Spiritism often implies divination or magical practices. The church, for her part, warns the faithful against it. Recourse to so-called traditional cures does not justify either the invocation of evil powers or the exploitation of another's credulity. Irreligion. God's first command, excuse me, commandment condemns the main sins of irreligion, tempting God in words or deeds, sacrilege, and simony. Tempting God consists in putting his goodness and almighty power to the test by word or deed. Thus Satan tried to induce Jesus to throw himself down from the temple and by this gesture force God to act. Jesus opposed Satan with the word of God, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. The challenge contained in such tempting of God wounds the respect and trust we owe our creator and Lord. It always harbors doubt about his love, his providence, and his power. Sacrilege consists in profaning or treating unworthily the sacraments and other liturgical actions, as well as persons, things, or places consecrated to God. Sacrilege is a grave sin, especially when committed against the Eucharist, for in this sacrament the true body of Christ is made substantially present for us. Simony is defined as the buying or selling of spiritual things. To Simon the magician, who wanted to buy the spiritual power he saw at work in the apostles, St. Peter responded, Your silver perish with you, because you thought you could obtain God's gift with money. Peter thus held to the words of Jesus, You received without pay, give without pay. It is impossible to appropriate to oneself spiritual goods and behave toward them as their owner or master, for they have their source in God. One can receive them only from him without payment. The minister should ask nothing for the administration of the sacraments beyond the offerings defined by the competent authority, always being careful that the needy are not deprived of the help of the sacraments because of their poverty. The competent authority determines these offerings in accordance with the principle that the Christian people ought to contribute to the support of the church's minister. ministers. The laborer deserves his food. Atheism. Many of our contemporaries either do not at all perceive or explicitly reject this intimate and vital bond of man to God. Atheism must therefore be regarded as one of the most serious problems of our time. The name atheism covers many very different phenomena. One common form is the practical materialism, which, res- which restricts its needs and aspirations to space and time. Atheistic humanism falsely considers man to be an end to himself and the sole maker with supreme control of his own history. 
another form of contemporary atheism, looks for the liberation of man through economic and social liberation. It holds that religion, of its very nature, thwarts such emancipation by raising man's hopes in a future life, thus both deceiving him and discouraging him from working for a better form of life on earth. Since it rejects or denies the existence of God, atheism is a sin against the virtue of religion. The imputability of this offense can be significantly diminished in virtue of the intentions and the circumstances. Believers can have more than a little to do with the rise of atheism. To the extent that they are careless about their instruction in the faith or present its teaching falsely or even fail in their religious, moral, and social life, they must be said to conceal rather than to reveal the true nature of God and of religion. Atheism is often based on a false conception of human autonomy, exaggerated to the point of refusing any dependence on God. Yet, to acknowledge God is in no way to oppose the dignity of man, since such dignity is grounded and brought to perfection in God. For the Church knows full well that her message is in harmony with the most secret desires of the human heart. Agnosticism Agnosticism assumes a number of forms. In certain cases, the agnostic refrains from denying God. Instead, he postulates the existence of a transcendent being, which is incapable of revealing itself, and about which nothing can be said. In other cases, the agnostic makes no judgment about God's existence, declaring it impossible to prove or even to affirm or deny. Agnosticism can sometimes include a certain search for God, but it can equally express indifferentism, a flight from the ultimate question of existence, and a sluggish moral conscience. Agnosticism is all too equivalent to practical atheism. You shall not make for yourself a graven image. The divine injunction included the prohibition of every representation of God by the hand of man. Deuteronomy explains, Since you saw no form on the day that the Lord spoke to you at Horeb, out of the midst of the fire, beware lest you act corruptly by making a graven image for yourselves in the form of any figure. It is the absolutely transcendent God who revealed himself to Israel. He is the all, but at the same time he is greater than all his works. He is the author of beauty. Nevertheless, already in the Old Testament, God ordained or permitted the making of images that pointed symbolically toward salvation by the incarnate word. So it was with the bronze serpent, the Ark of the Covenant, and the cherubim. Basing itself on the mystery of the incarnate word, the Seventh Ecumenical Council at Nicaea in 787 justified against the iconoclasts the veneration of icons, of Christ, but also of the Mother of God, the angels, and all the saints— by becoming incarnate, the Son of God introduced a new economy of Im images. The Christian veneration of images is not contrary to the first commandment, which proscribes idols. Indeed, the honor rendered to an image passes to its prototype, and whoever venerates an image venerates the person portrayed in it. The honor paid to sacred images is a respectful veneration, not the adoration due to God alone. Religious worship is not directed to images in themselves, considered as mere things, but under their distinctive aspect as images leading us on to God incarnate. The movement toward the image does not terminate in it as image, but tends towards that whose image it is. That's St. Thomas Aquinas who said that. In brief, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. The first commandment summons man to believe in God, to hope in him, and to love him above all else. You shall worship the Lord your God, adoring God, praying to him, offering him the worship that belongs to him, fulfilling the promises and vows which made to him are acts of the virtue of religion, which fall under obedience to the first commandment. 
The duty to offer God authentic worship concerns man both as an individual and as a social being. Men of the present day want to profess their religion freely in private and in public. Superstition is a departure from the worship that we give to the true God. It is manifested in idolatry, as well as in various forms of divination and magic. Tempting God in words or deeds, sacrilege and simony, are sins of irreligion forbidden by the first commandment. Since it rejects or denies the existence of God, atheism is a sin against the first commandment. The veneration of sacred images is based on the mystery of the incarnation of the word of God. It is not contrary to the first commandment. Article 2, the second commandment. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. You have heard that it was said to the men of old, you shall not swear falsely, but I say to you, do not swear at all. The name of the Lord is holy. The second commandment prescribes respect for the Lord's name. Like the first commandment, it belongs to the virtue of religion, and more particularly, it governs our use of speech in sacred matters. Among all the words of Revelation, there is one which is unique, the revealed name of God. God confides his name to those who believe in him. He reveals himself to them in his personal mystery. The gift of a name belongs to the order of trust and intimacy. The Lord's name is holy. For this reason, man must not abuse it. He must keep it in mind in silent, loving adoration. He will not introduce it into his own speech except to bless, praise, and glorify it. Respect for his name is an expression of the respect owed to the mystery of God himself and to the whole sacred reality it evokes. The sense of the sacred is part of the virtue of religion. Are these feelings of fear and awe Christian feelings or not? I say this then, which I think no one can reasonably dispute. They are the class of feelings we should have, Yes, to have an intense degree, if we literally had the sight of Almighty God. Therefore, they are the class of feelings which we shall have, if we realize his presence. In proportion, as we believe that he is present, we shall have them. And not to have them is not to realize, not to believe that he is present. That's John Henry Cardinal Newman. The faithful should bear witness to the Lord's name by confessing the faith without giving way to fear. Preaching and catechizing should be permeated with adoration and respect for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. The second commandment forbids the abuse of God's name. For example, every improper use of the names of God, Jesus Christ, but also of the Virgin Mary and all the saints. Promises made to other in God's, others in God's name engage the divine honor, fidelity, truthfulness, and authority. They must be respected in justice. To be unfaithful to them is to misuse God's name and in some way to make God out to be a liar. Blasphemy is directed, directly opposed to the second commandment. It consists in uttering against God, inwardly or outwardly, words of hatred, reproach, or defiance. In speaking ill of God, in failing in respect toward him in one's speech, in misusing God's name. St. James condemns those who blaspheme that honorable name of Jesus by which you are called. The prohibition of blasphemy extends to language against Christ's church, the saints, and sacred things. It is also blasphemous to make use of God's name to cover up criminal practices, to reduce peoples to servitude, to torture persons or put them to death. The misuse of God's name to commit a crime can provoke others to repudiate religion. Blasphemy is contrary to the respect due God and his holy name. It is in itself a grave sin. Oaths which misuse God's name, though without the intention of blasphemy, show lack of respect for the Lord. The second commandment also forbids magical use of the divine name. God's name is great when spoken with respect for the greatness of his majesty. 
God's name is holy when said with veneration and fear of offending him. That's St. Augustine. Taking the name of the Lord in vain. The second commandment forbids false oaths. Taking an oath or swearing is to take God as witness to what one affirms. It is to invoke the divine truthfulness as a pledge of one's own truthfulness. An oath engages the Lord's name. You shall fear the Lord your God. You shall serve him and swear by his name. Rejection of false oaths is a duty toward God. As creator and Lord, God is the norm of all truth. Human speech is either in accord with or in opposition to God who is truth itself. When it is truthful and legitimate, an oath highlights the relationship of human speech with God's truth. A false oath calls on God to be witness to a lie. A person commits perjury when he makes a promise under oath with no intention of keeping it, or when after promising on oath, he does not keep it. Perjury is a grave lack of respect for the Lord of all speech. Pledging oneself by oath to commit an evil deed is contrary to the holiness of the divine name. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus explained the second commandment. You have heard that it was said to the men of old, You shall not swear falsely, but you shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not swear at all. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from the evil one. Jesus teaches that every oath involves a reference to God and that God's presence and his truth must be honored in all speech. Discretion in calling upon God is allied with a respectful awareness of his presence, which all our assertions either witness to or mock. Following St. Paul, the tradition of the church has understood Jesus' words as not excluding oaths made for grave and right reasons, for example, in court. An oath, that is the invocation of the divine name as a witness to truth, cannot be taken unless in truth, in judgment, and in justice. The holiness of the divine name demands that we neither use it for trivial matters nor take an oath which on the basis of the circumstances could be interpreted as approval of an authority unjustly requiring it. When an oath is required by illegitimate civil authorities, it may be refused. It must be refused when it is required for purposes contrary to the dignity of persons or to ecclesial communion. The Christian name. The sacrament of baptism is conferred in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. In baptism, the Lord's name sanctifies man, and the Christian receives his name in the church. This can be the name of a saint, that is, of a disciple who has lived a life of exemplary fidelity to the Lord. The patron saint provides a model of charity. We are assured of his intercession. The baptismal name can also express a Christian mystery or Christian virtue. Parents, sponsors, and the pastor are to see that a name is not given which is foreign to Christian sentiment. The Christian begins his days, his prayers, and his activities with the sign of the cross. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. The baptized person dedicates the day to the glory of God and calls on the Savior's grace, which lets him act in the spirit as a child of the Father. The sign of the cross strengthens us in temptations and difficulties. God calls each one by name. Everyone's name is sacred. The name is the icon of the person. It demands respect as a sign of the dignity of the one who bears it. The name one receives is a name for eternity. In the kingdom, the mysterious and unique character of each person marked with God's name will shine forth in splendor. To him who conquers, I will give a white stone with a new name written on the stone, which no one knows except him who receives it. Then I looked, and lo, on Mount Zion stood the Lamb, and with him a hundred and forty-four thousand, who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. In brief, 
O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. The second commandment enjoins respect for the Lord's name. The name of the Lord is holy. The second commandment forbids every improper use of God's name. Blasphemy is the use of the name of God, of Jesus Christ, of the Virgin Mary, and of the saints in an offensive way. False oaths call on God to be witness to a lie. Perjury is a grave offense against the Lord who is always faithful to his promises. Do not swear, whether by the Creator or any creature, except truthfully, of necessity, and with reverence. In baptism, the Christian receives his name in the church. Parents, godparents, and the pastor are to see that he be given a Christian name. The patron saint provides a model of charity and the assurance of his prayer. The Christian begins his prayers and activities with the sign of the cross. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. God calls each one by name. This brings us to the end of our reading selection, the end of our episode. Thanks for joining me. Between this week and next week's episode, please pray for me. I'll be praying for you. And in the meantime, God bless you. Thanks for joining me this week on Catholic Light. Be sure to like, subscribe, and share this podcast with your family and your friends. And connect with me through Facebook and Instagram. I'll see you next week. And in the meantime, God bless you.